KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all so much for being with us today. Uh, We're going to take on a subject that we have not talked about in any depth in the past few weeks, and that, of course, is COVID-19, the pandemic, the coronavirus, and um, a lot is happening. There are a lot of people out there who have many questions about how they are supposed to be behaving if they've been vaccinated, uh, what they uh, need to do if they haven't gotten a vaccine, why some people don't want the vaccine, and lots of other uh, questions that our panel will help us unwind on the show today. Um, Plus, Jill Biden is here. She's going to be down in Savannah, where she's going to be part of an effort to encourage younger people Uh, to uh, get the vaccine. We'll talk about that as well. Kevin Riley is here, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, as a regular part of our Thursday shows. Kevin, hi. It's great to be here, Bill, and uh, you neglected to mention we are in the studio together. We're actually in the studio. Staring at each other uh, (laughs) right at this moment, which uh, I I think I'm enjoying more than anyone would have imagined. (laughs) We're both fully vaccinated, sitting here uh, without masks on and uh, feeling pretty good about it all. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for being here. Uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio is here. Uh, he, of course, is executive associate dean of the Emory School of Medicine, the Grady Health System. He's a professor in the Department of Medicine, a Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine. And uh, you have heard him or seen him uh, talking about the virus uh, and its consequences uh, on many new shows, including ours, over the past year or more. Dr. Del Rio, thanks so much for being here. A pleasure being with you, Bill. Um, we're also joined today by Dr. Karen Landman, who is like at least a triple threat, if not a quadruple threat. She is a health journalist reporting on uh, health care issues and medicine for uh, publications like the New York Times. She's also an epidemiologist and a medical doctor. And Karen, we're always glad to have you on uh, these shows. Thanks for being with us. Oh, always a pleasure to be here, Bill. Thank you. Sure. And Andy Miller. The editor of Georgia Health News is also here. Um, Georgia Health News, Andy, has been, it's always been a valuable addition to the journalism uh, community, but especially during the pandemic. Uh, We really congratulate you on the work you've been doing, and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Bill. Okay, um, let me start. We're going to be talking about um, the, uh, the, the situation in Georgia But since it's in the headlines today, and Dr. Del Rio, I'll I'll ask you about this uh, first, and and then everybody's welcome to weigh in. As I was coming into work this morning, I uh, heard the news that even with the Olympics about to begin in a couple of weeks in Japan, uh, the country has declared a national emergency. There have already been concerns about uh, whether or not the um, uh, the virus was going to uh, create some significant problems. Foreigners are already barred from attending. Now the question is whether the, uh, the Japanese people will be allowed to go to the games. Dr. Del Rio, 
um, we're all part of a global world. So when you think about what's happening in Japan with the start of the Olympics, what are the reasons we ought to be looking at that very carefully and wondering what the consequences could be beyond Japan? Uh, well, Bill, I think the first thing is to, to see where Japan is in their immunization rate. Japan has given a total of about you know, a little bit over 52 million doses of vaccine, and in fact, they only have 15.2% of their population fully vaccinated. Compare that to what the U.S. has done. So as much as we frequently say, well, the U.S. could be doing better, we have close to 50% of our population immunized. I mean, it's really, frankly, a, a tragedy that Japan is, has as low as a vaccination rate as a country like Brazil. I mean, you would imagine that Japan would have prepared better, would have prepared for the Olympics. This wasn't a surprise. They would have, you know, they should have had 70% of their population vaccinated. And the fact that they didn't do that, I think, really speaks poorly about Japan's government and Japan's public health preparing for the Olympics the way they should. And now, with the surging of the Delta variant, I think they're in, they're in trouble. I think, you know, you cannot have your cake and eat it. You're, you cannot have the Olympics and have a lot of people come from all over the world and have such low immunization rate. I think that's really potentially creating a significant problem. So I have been, you know, as you know, I've been advising a lot of sports organizations, including the NCAA. Uh, I'm working now with the USDA and a couple of organizations. You know, I haven't worked with the Olympic Committee, so I don't know what plans they have. But this, this is a concern and something that I hope they really have very good plans to prevent an outbreak from happening. Um, so, you know, Kevin, uh, Carlos Del Rio talks about the, um, you know, some of the teams that, and, and sports that he's been consulting with. We should point out yesterday in the European Cup, England versus Denmark, they had 65,000 people uh, in the stadium watching that game live. And, and, and there was great excitement about that, but it speaks to this urge that people have to get back to real, regular life. And the fact is, we've got to be a little uh, cautious about that still. Right. It's true. That's what I think is the strangest thing about what Japan has done relative to the Olympics, because uh, one of the motivating things, certainly in this country and in many other countries, has been the chance to go to big sporting events, which is always a, a – I mean, look at the Hawks and the community pride that that created and how many people wanted to be at those playoff games. And there is no bigger athletic competition, more high profile, with greater ability to influence people all over the world than the Olympics. And it looks as if the Japanese, for some reason, just blundered the whole thing when it could have been a powerful – and persuasive way to convince people all over the world, but especially in Japan, to get the vaccine. Karen, when I look at the map of global hotspots, I see obviously South America. Uh, I see the southern tip of Africa, South Africa, and I see uh, sections of the Soviet Union. Uh, the United States uh, is it not in anywhere near as uh, significantly impacted by these hotspots as other countries uh, at this point. What does that tell you? It tells me that um, everyone else um, who has not achieved a, a pretty high vaccination rate at this point is about to have or has had um, the kind of surge that we have that we saw here uh, last year and over the winter time. 
and uh, what India saw just uh, just a few short weeks ago. Um, I, you know, vaccination rates really need to be up in the in the 50, 60, 70 percent range before you start seeing the kind of community mitigation that you need to avoid um, horrible surges and disasters. And um, you know, many many countries are really just not uh, are not there yet. So. Uh, it, it says to me this is not something uh, that is going to fizzle out worldwide um, just because it seems to be on the downswing here in the United States. I think we're looking at um, a few really difficult years. Um, okay, so that, that's sort of a little bit about the global picture, but clearly we want to focus in on what's happening here in Georgia. Um, Andy, as I pointed out, the uh, the, the first uh, the first vice president, uh, the, the wife of the vice president, is going to be in uh, Savannah today, Jill Biden. And she's particularly concerned, as uh, uh, many people are, about the low rates of vaccinations for young people. I think the numbers in Georgia are something like only 80 plus thousand uh, young people between the ages of like uh, 12 and 15 have been vaccinated in schools only about a month or so away, Andy. Well, this is a this is a challenge. This is going to be a challenge for the next few months. I mean, I noticed that uh, getting away from Georgia for a minute, there are states that are seeing uh, upticks in COVID hospitalizations, such as Arkansas and Iowa. So uh, we think that the variant, the, co- the Delta variant, may be playing a role in that. And and uh, we do have low vaccination rates as you mentioned, among the young, but also in many rural areas, the vaccination rate here in Georgia is below 30 percent. All right. Carlos Del Rio, give us, if you would, please, just a general overview of where we in Georgia stand today in terms of new cases, hospitalizations, percentages of people vaccinated. Just what is the landscape of COVID-19 of the coronavirus in Georgia today? Well, you know, today we are in, in Georgia, we're very uh, lucky. We're in a very good place in the sense that the number of, of new cases is significantly down. The number of hospitalizations is, is, you know, it's down. We're down in the about five to 600 hospitalizations. The number of deaths is also uh, significantly down. So if you look across the state, when you think about where are the hotspots in the state, you find a couple of counties, if you go down to the county level, that, that are hotspots. And those counties that are hotspots that are, are still having increase in cases or increase in hospitalizations are, are counties, again, that have low vaccination rates. So you really have to see what is the, what is the vaccination rate uh, percentage in that, in that community and then see, okay, this is what's happening as a result of that. So the best shield we can do, as, as Karen said, the higher the number of people we get vaccinated, the more we create sort of a barrier against the spread of the virus. So at this point in time, in a good position in the sense that we have not, we're not really having a surge. We are, we are in, a, in a sort of stable state with low numbers of people uh, getting infected every day. But, but we, we have this potential risk of many communities having low vaccination rates. And again, you need to get down to the community because when you see that, it's not, you know, here in Metro Atlanta, it's not in the big cities, you know, in Macon, uh, you know, and others. It's really in some of the more rural southern counties where you start seeing the, the, the search potentially happening. Dr. Landman, you mentioned, uh, you know, until we get to vaccination rates to a certain point, there's a lot of risk. So from where you sit, what risk do you see in Georgia 
And, and what should we be watching that would, would say, uh-oh, we might have a problem or a resurgence here? Well, I mean, as Carlos said, the risk is really that in pockets of places where you have pockets of people, where you have really low rates of vaccination, that you're going to have rampant spread of the virus among those folks. Um, and it's not just infection, but obviously it's, it's hospitalization, severe outcomes, um, long COVID and deaths that are really of concern to us. Um, this is um, this is really a, a pandemic right now of unvaccinated people. Vaccinated people are pretty safe for now. The variants that we're seeing, um, you know, so far it looks like vaccines are protecting against them, but there are uh, the more spread we have among unvaccinated people, it's not just that there are consequences for themselves, but there are also consequences for the virus. It gets more fit, more able to evade um, the defenses that vaccinated people have, the more it spreads among people. So it's in our interest to prevent that kind of transmission, not only to prevent uh, unvaccinated folks from turning up in the hospital or ending up with long COVID or you know, worse, dying of COVID, but also to prevent this from turning into a germ that could cause those of us who are vaccinated um, further problems and, and infection. Um, so, again, let's go back to the fact, uh, Andy, that um, we are still one of the lowest states in terms of shots in arms in the country. And yet, and yet, and during uh, much of the latter stages last year of of the uh, spread of COVID-19, Governor Kemp was being heavily criticized for lifting some of the restrictions, for um, perhaps not taking uh, the coronavirus as seriously as it was being taken in other states. And yet, and yet, we have been surprisingly successful, maybe that's an unfair term, surprisingly, we've been pretty successful in tamping down COVID-19 here. What does that tell us about um, the kinds of restrictions that some states have put in place, others haven't. I, it confuses me, to tell you the truth. Well, it, it's it's a mixed bag. I mean, if you compare us to Florida, you know, Florida did it a little bit differently. California did it differently. I, I think there is going to be research at the at the end of this to tell us, you know, which which strategy was most effective. I will give the governor credit for really pushing vaccination publicly at, at all his press conferences and, and indeed getting sh- uh, shot publicly himself. I will say, though, it's disturbing that, you know, you're this is a political show, Bill, and I've got to mention the fact that it's it's a much higher percentage of Republicans who are refusing to get a vaccine than the percentage of Democrats who are refusing to get a vaccine. And that's something I think Republican leaders should address in the state. Dr. Del Rio, um, Andy makes that point, right, of uh, the governor publicly uh, encouraging vaccination and a lot of, uh, in a lot of situations. But let's imagine for a second that Carlos, we were talking to Governor Carlos Del Rio instead of Dr. Uh, <laughs> Carlos Del Rio. And would you mandate uh, vaccines in our state in any form or fashion? Or what would what do you think is the best possible thing for a governor to do? And I understand it's a political question, not just a public health question. Well, you know, that's why the governor is the governor, because he has to deal with, with politics and he has to make political decisions. I think mandating the vaccine, it, it, it makes no sense in this point in time by, by the government. I think it will create significant backlash, 
especially as the vaccine still is under emergency use authorization. I think once a vaccine receives full FDA approval, there could be organizations, there could be, you know, many institutions that may require you to get vaccinated. But I think that given all the politics involved, the, the mandates are, are going to be very, very difficult. What's going to be very important is going to be, you know, the governor has indeed done a good job promoting the vaccine. I think there needs to be more done at the local level. I think it's not just the governor. It needs to be every single one of our, you know, congressional representatives needs to go to their uh, local community and to their voters and to their constituents and say, hey, I received the vaccine and you too need to receive the vaccine. To me, it's a little interesting, and I find it com completely puzzling that, you know, this is a vaccine that was developed under President Trump. I mean, we need to give credit to his administration for having put the resources, put together Operation War Speed, and make this vaccine happen. I'm surprised that the Republican Party has not come out and say, look, this is our vaccine. We developed this vaccine. We trust it. We want it. This is a vaccine that, you know, has all our support. You know, it, it really has been, to me, just fascinating to see how that has not been the case. Mm -hmm. And I think it really shows how politicizing, how incredibly confusing this political issue is around the vaccine. But the reality is in our state, there's a lot of, as Karen mentioned, pockets of people not vaccinated. So rather than having big advertising and campaigns, you really need to do what's called, you know, hyper-local campaigns. You really need to get down to the community. You need to work with local partners. Um, I was talking to Dr. Walensky, who was down with Dr. Toomey in a rural county in Georgia, and she said that, you know, the message she got from people in the community there was very clear. People said, I don't want to hear from, from you or the governor that I need to take the vaccine. I want to hear from the, you know, the fireman who sits next to me in church. When he receives the vaccine, I'll take the vaccine. So it really is that trusted local person that we work with and that gets the vaccine. And that's why increasing vaccination rates in those communities is going at a glacial pace. And that's what I'm concerned about is not, I don't think that, the, I think the Department of Public Health is doing a very good job, but the reality is what needs to be done right now, it's really novel, it's really complicated, and it's really a, sort of a, a person at a time kind of approach. It's not gonna be, you know, all the, all the people that wanted to get vaccinated got vaccinated. Now we really need to do the difficult job of getting those that are on the border, that still have questions, or that frankly are in a waiting position. And we need to yeah. talk to each one of those individuals uh, personally. And that's going to take a lot of resources, a lot of effort, and quite frankly, uh, it's going to take time. You know, I, I want to uh, uh, respond to that or ask you to respond to that, Kevin. You know, w that point that we should have our members of Congress be the ones, among other local officials who get out there and say get vaccinated, when you take the political uh, uh, aspect of this I into consideration, there are Republican members of our congressional delegation who would probably be very hesitant to go into a community meeting and tell their folks to get vaccinated because they would see it as labeling them somehow as anti-Trump, part of the larger uh, uh, anti-Trump effort that ha we've seen uh, uh, going on in terms of hesitancy about the vaccine. Right. And it's it's the politics are genuinely confusing and hard to follow, as Dr. Del Rio, I think, points out. And I know we're going to talk a lot about vaccine reluctance here as we get deeper into the show. But Dr. Lamman, a question for you. Dr. Del Rio mentioned in passing that the the uh, FDA hasn't 
actually finally approve the vaccines, which is which is something that comes up from time to time. And I think that's very confusing for average people. What exactly does that mean? Explain that, um, what's going on here. Yeah, so there's this thing called the emergency authorization, uh, emergency use authorization, that basically results in a compressed timeline for reviewing the data that uh, the FDA uses to approve a, a, a vaccine. And it, it, it's just a less extensive um, set of, it's, it's similar, very pretty similar data. It's just a different kind of way of reviewing it. But um, that was used to appro- uh, approve under emergency standards the vaccines that we are now using broadly in the United States. A full approval um, is just a different status that involves a different level of review of those data. And that will be, um, that's probably a few months away. I think the way this factors into what um, what a lot of public health folks are thinking is that um, they're, they're concerned that if businesses or governments mandate the vaccination of um, employees, uh, you know, or, or people just more broadly in, um, in counties and municipalities and states, that that, um, that a court challenge to those mandates will be much more likely to be successful um, if the vaccine has only been, quote unquote, only been approved under this emergency use authorization, rather than if it had been approved as, as all the other vaccines we use are under the sort of, quote, full approval. So um, I think the full approval feels to a lot of public health folks like a ticket to being able to mandate its use in a lot of business settings. Um, all right, let's do this. Why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way? Um, I, I want to continue talking about uh, uh, the conversation about how we encourage people without mandates to get vaccinated. Um, and we'll do that. And then we're going to answer some of your questions, some of the most basic questions that many people have right now about the coronavirus and uh, their vulnerability, whether vaccinated or not. We'll do all that and more when we come back on Political Rewind. Karen Landman, Carlos Del Rio, Andy Miller, Kevin Riley join me for Political Rewind today. Andy, um, I want to pick up on something that uh, Carlos Del Rio, Del Rio pointed out a little while ago, talking about the fact that it was the Trump administration that uh, was able to expedite the process of getting the viruses, the uh, vaccines to us. And they could be celebrating that and making, you know, making that a point of why people should all be getting vaccinated. That isn't happening among Republicans. But here's another aspect of this that I find fascinating, Andy. We have learned in the last few weeks that Donald Trump, President Trump, was far sicker with uh, COVID-19 than was ever reported and that he ended up having a mixture of cocktails of drugs that finally allowed him to recover. But he was he was very, very ill. And the fact it's interesting, Andy, to think about the politics of that in coming out of the hospital. That could have been a moment when the president, rather than appearing to be a superman, was willing to say, this is how sick I was. These drugs helped me, including uh, a, a vaccine that we're going to develop in this country, and he he missed that opportunity entirely. Well, the Trump administration has to be given credit because they they threw a lot of money at vaccine development, and and I think it's nothing short of miraculous that we got vaccines as soon as we did, and as effective as they are. Uh, it's it's just incredible. 
So, yeah, I mean, it goes back to uh, what we said before about Republican congressmen. Uh, it could be uh, ministers in a local community. It could be policemen. It could be physicians. I mean, you know, 96 percent of physicians are fully vaccinated. It's, it's people like that talking to regular people who are on the fence. And, and we haven't talked about misinformation, but there's there's a battle against misinformation as well. And it could be, you know, uh, anything from a lot of women of childbearing age fearing that, you know, hearing the myth that it could cause getting a vaccine could cause infertility. Uh, And and there are all sorts of wackier myths out there. And and it's about counteracting those myths and, and talking to people about the side effects and, and, you know, about concerns about side effects and leveling with them and, and talking about a- the absolute risk of not being vaccinated. OK, so if, if I may, I'd like to move away from the partisan uh, politics that this is wrapped up with and talk about some practical matters. Um, Carlos Del Rio and Karen Lamont, I'd love for both of you to comment on this. Uh, Dr. Del Rio, um, we have a low percentage of school age, uh, middle school kids getting vaccinated. School starts in about a month. We don't know whether masks are going to be required in different school systems across the state. Social distancing guidelines are unclear. What are the risks that uh, schools are facing when they go back into session uh, in August? Well, I think if schools have a low vaccination rates in there, you know, and we're talking really here about, you know, junior high and high schools, if schools have low vaccination rates, there will be likely uh, problems in some of those schools. I think we've learned that, you know, school transmission is not a major issue. And we've learned from things like, you know, you can keep a three, you know, three foot distance and masking is important, but you can have, you know, ventilation, a lot of activities outdoors, but you can still have infections. You can still have cases. And again, having vaccines I really think we need to make an effort to get, you know, parents really need to make an effort to get their kids vaccinated. I think getting back to normal, the door, I continue to tell people, and I agree with Andy, this is about talking to people as physicians, as others. The door, the the exit of this pandemic, the getting back to normal runs through the vaccine route. And not following the vaccine route is simply trying to find workarounds and trying to put yourself at incredible risk. So, again, talking to school boards, talking to uh, parents, explaining to them the importance of getting their kids vaccinated and making vaccine access incredibly uh, easy uh, for for families at all levels. Because, again, what I don't want to hear is I couldn't find a vaccine. I couldn't get it. It wasn't in my community. That's a problem that we need to avoid. When somebody wants a vaccine, they need to be able to get a vaccine. And that's how we get vaccination rates up. Karen Landman. Yeah. You know, I think there are a couple of things here. Number one. Um, it depends what school age we're talking about. If we're talking about elementary schools and middle schools, you know, most kids aren't eligible for the vaccine there yet, and I don't know when they will be. And in those areas, in those, in those schools, in those age groups, really masking is the name of the game. Masking works so well in schools. It, um, it, it, it really uh, enables people to, to teachers, uh, other school employees, and kids to be in school safely. Um, and, uh, if you don't have masks, I think you're going to have spread. And that is sure. It's a small danger to kids. It's a big danger to uh, the adults who work with those kids. And that's, 
um, who I think a lot of us are really most worried about in those situations. Um, because a lot of the places that don't want uh, where the school boards really are actively, uh, actively trying to keep uh, mask mandates out of schools are the same places where a lot of adults are not vaccinated. So that's kind of a recipe for bad things. Another thing is that I think in older kids, you know, 12 and up, um, where where vaccination is kind of the key to activity, you know, where where you cannot be in, in a fun public space with other kids without being vaccinated, kids are begging their parents to let them get vaccinated. Um, and I, in that way, I think it's encouraging to, to know that that kids may actually be the key to converting some of their parents who are sort of not on board with vaccination to, to kind of come over to the vaccination side. The third thing I want to say is that, you know, we're, think, we're talking about the U.S. here, but in the U.S., kids are a pretty small proportion of the population. You know, we have only about 16 percent of our population is under 15. In low-income countries, it's a much, much higher proportion. They're 42 percent of the population. So while we may think of the actual medical impact uh, or consequences to kids here as pretty small, we're really leading the world in, in making decisions about how we protect them. And the countries where kids are a much higher proportion of the population, where there's a much higher risk of, um, of bad outcomes to a larger number of kids there, um, we are putting them at risk by not taking kids' safety seriously. Andy, I would think that uh, you at Georgia Health News uh, will, will be paying an awful lot of attention to how school systems across the state deal with getting back to in-person classes in the fall. What are you seeing so far as you, assuming you've started to look at how schools are going to uh, require masks, not require masks, what are you seeing out there? I'm seeing a lot of option, uh, schools saying it's going to be optional for, for teachers and for students. And, um, and I, as Karen mentioned, uh, the research has shown that the schools that have required, elementary schools that have required masks had much lower COVID rates among kids and the staff than those that just uh, let it go and, and just had no rules for that. So uh, it'll be an interesting decision, school board by school board, in terms of how they handle this. And I know that Atlanta Public Schools is kind of on the fence on this, or it sounds like it, that they're requiring masks now, but they may revisit that, situ- that decision later. Our reporting at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution also backs that up, where the school boards um, are trying to manage, uh, again, I think a lot of the politics of this and what it what a masks uh, indicate and make people feel and um, the, the divisiveness that's been created. And so they are going to make it optional. And, and we see a lot of, of research and a lot of uh, strong evidence that says if you can keep school kids wearing masks, it will really help. And then, of course, the, the oddity of that is if a student wears a mask, what they're really doing is protecting fellow students more than themselves and vice versa, right? And just a personal anecdote, I mean, uh, my daughter's a preschool teacher, and one of the things she told me was how amazingly adaptive her students were to wearing masks. The kids just got used to it. They understood it. They felt they were extremely responsible in her, her telling of that. So it, to me, it's odd about that is I think it's not the, the actual students who, ha, who may have an issue with the mask. It's actually playing out in school board meetings and among parents and politically. Okay, and that leads us to some of the questions that listeners have been asking us to uh, get answers to from this panel. Uh, uh, Karen Lamon, let me start with you um, on this one. So, um, 
we're fully vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated. Uh, I go to the supermarket and uh, I figure I don't need to wear a mask anymore. I'm fully vaccinated. My chances of getting COVID-19, even if it's possible, uh, I'm told that the case is going to be very mild. Why do I go into the supermarket still wearing a mask? Um, I think variants are probably the main reason that, that most of us do. And also the, the specific things about you that might make you at, a, at risk for being somewhat less protected by a vaccine. Let me explain that. The Delta variant we know is more transmissible. We do think that overall vaccines do protect two vaccines, being fully vaccinated, namely two weeks out from your last dose of a vaccine in a series, keep, really protect you very well from the most severe outcomes of COVID, maybe 93% uh, protection against hospitalization. That doesn't mean you're protected from having the milder effects as well as you might be, um, uh, I'm sorry, when it comes to the Delta variant as well as you might be compared to other variants. So you might still get sort of bad cold symptoms. And um, and we also don't, you know, there are variants out there that are still emerging and future variants that we don't yet know about. So I'd want to protect myself from those. Number two, you know, we're seeing a lot of the hospitalizations that we're seeing for breakthrough infections, meaning infections in people who've been vaccinated, are in people who do have some immune system deficits, people who are either on an immune suppressive drug, have an autoimmune problem, or are in another way immune compromised. So um, those folks, um, are just simply not as well protected from um, from infection with uh, even sort of original recipe COVID as um, as folks who uh, who are who do not have those conditions. So in those conditions, I would definitely wear a mask going into the grocery store, even if you're fully vaccinated. Uh, I have to say that I think you dodged a bullet when you said uh, pointed to me and said you need to wear one. I thought you were going to say because I'm so old, but thank you for not going there. <laughs> Carlo, Carlos Del Rio, weigh in on uh, why we're all wearing masks even if we're fully vaccinated. Well, again, you know, as Karen says, uh, you know, I'm fully vaccinated and I have relaxed my mask a lot. And I would say, uh, you know, I don't wear it outside. We don't need it outside. And I think a lot of the people that continue to wear masks outside, I respect them, but you really don't need to. Uh, you can go in the in the park. You can go run. You can go do, you know, exercise outside. It's fine. But if I'm going to be indoors and if I'm going to be in a crowded environment, if I'm going to be with a lot of people that I may not be vaccinated and where there's, you know, frequently poor circulation, I definitely wear a mask. So I think that's the issue is, is where, what, where is where is the situation? What is the situation I'm going into? And that helps me decide whether I need to wear a mask or not. Here, for example, inside the health system, inside the hospital, we continue to wear masks all the time. Mm -hmm. We continue to wear masks. Uh, and I will tell you that I really see going forward masks will become part of what we do for medical care. When I, you know, first trained in medicine back in the early 80s as a resident, you know, as HIV was surging, none of us wore gloves to draw blood. It wasn't a practice to wear gloves. To, and now, because of HIV, we implemented universal precautions. Using gloves to draw blood is now standard of care. This is universal precautions. I think COVID is going to cause a similar change in the way we, we see patients. I don't think... For years to come, I'm going to go into a patient room without wearing a mask. I think this is going to become the way we see patients. It's going to be part of our respiratory standard of care. And I think in that sense, it's going to be good because it's actually going to decrease transmission of other pathogens, other respiratory pathogens in the hospital. So I do think that masking, again, I go back to what I said, one of my, one of my, what I see as a tragedy in this pandemic, not only in the U.S., but in many places around the world, but here in the U.S., we saw it very significantly, is how public health interventions like masking 
and now, like vaccination, have been politicized. And the way public health interventions have been politicized really has caused a significant problem in managing this pandemic. And at the end of the day, many people could have been not infected, many deaths could have been averted if we had not politicized public health interventions. Um, Andy, before we get off questions about masking, I, one of the things that's interesting, and, and both Dr. Del Rio and Dr. Lamman kind of referred to this, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty used to wearing a mask now. For a while, it was very awkward. I was very uncomfortable. I don't even think twice about putting a mask on when I go out and about, and especially when I go to an indoor uh, location, a, a supermarket, a, whatever, a restaurant or whatever. And I think what Dr. Del Rio says about the medical profession um, might apply to the rest of us in the more general community that it, it's not such a bad thing to be wearing a mask. Um, have you had the same uh, uh, sense of that? I have. I can remember the first time I went into a restaurant fully vaccinated, and uh, it was. I, I was wondering, am I doing this right? I mean, I mean, you know, you can't eat and you know have a glass of wine with a mask on. But I, I think, in uh, going to a Braves game, you know, do you wear one while you go through the turnstiles? Uh, in a movie theater, do you wear one? Uh, and as you mentioned, in the grocery store. So I, I think it's a, it's a good idea, really, for people fully vaccinated just to have one with them, you know, if they're going out shopping trip or whatever, just, just in case there's really close quarters. And, and uh, you know, and I think that might be, I think we'll get used to, to that for, for still some, some more weeks and maybe months we'll, we'll have to do this. Um, Kevin Riley, uh, I give you a chance to, if there are questions that, you know, most people are curious about, please weigh in with one. I have one if you want me to go ahead. It depends on when you've got one, though. Uh, well, I wanted to kind of come back to uh, something uh, Andy mentioned about going into restaurants and the, and the signs. I mean, to me, what's confusing is some folks still have the signs up and the, or the signs say uh, our staff is wearing masks. Um and uh, I just wonder, like, my favorite example is on the airlines. I mean, you talk to so many people, you know, who are convinced that when they got on a plane, even well before the pandemic, that they were going to be vulnerable to getting sick or worried about getting sick. Um, and I, I just think that w- will be, become part of what we do. We will always, we will always yeah. just like everyone who flies may wear a mask going forward. Yeah. So. Dr. Del Rio, what are we and, learning? And, you know, Kevin, you, go Kevin ahead. Let, me, let me just add to that. Uh, I... I also have heard some members of Congress start saying, well, maybe it's time to drop the mask requirement on public transportation. And I really think, I hope that doesn't happen right away. We saw, I I would say the airlines did a good job of implementing masking and requiring masking way before there was a federal mandate. And this was really hard. Flight attendants and flight personnel had to enforce something that many passengers said, oh, there's no federal mandate, I don't need to do this, and created a lot of of anger and a lot of difficulty with passengers. Having the federal mandate makes it a lot easier for for airlines. I sure hope that Congress doesn't, you know, doesn't take down that federal mandate just yet, because I don't think it's the time to do it, and I think it will create a lot of difficulties again for airlines when, you know, you're going to see some passengers mask and others not. All right. Um, while you got the ball, Dr. Del Rio, another question people are asking, what is the durability? What have we learned so far from data about how long those, in, in the case of Pfizer and Moderna, uh, 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 two shots in Johnson & Johnson, one, 
how long the protection is likely to last. We're starting to get some information about that, yes? Yeah, correct. And I think, you know, two things that we need to tell people is it's hard to know durability of something that is fairly new, right? We really started using these vaccines. I would tell you the people that got involved in the phase one study, and Emory was one of the two sites Mm -hmm. around the country that did the phase one study in Moderna. Those people got their first vaccinations back in March of last year. They still have uh, ability, neutralizing capability in their antibodies and in their cells about a year and a half, a year and three months after they were first immunized. So as we are as we are advancing, we're learning more. The good news so far is that the the duration of immunity appears to be much better than we initially predicted. It seems to be fairly consistent. I think what's going to be a challenge, as Karen mentioned, is you could potentially, as their transmission of variants, and you know, as long as there's transmission globally, the virus can mutate and produce new variants, and there may be variants that are less, you know, less neutralized by the vaccines, and that may may give, uh, you know, that may give the entry point to say, well, you need a booster because there's now this new variant. But up at this point, I'm telling people there's absolutely no need at this point to get a, to get a, a booster, to get a revaccination, unless you happen to be, you know, some immunosuppressed patients. Uh, we've seen, for example, in some transplant patients with some data suggesting a third dose may make a difference. But it's very few and far between situations. CDC is not recommending boosters. I'm not recommending boosters at this point in time. I'm telling people, if you have it immunized, you are protected. If you are a transplant recipient, if you are a severely immunocompromised individual, you probably need to discuss with your doctor. And I would say the best way to protect yourself is, number one, continue using a mask. But number two, have those around you be immunized. Create sort of a circle of immunity around yourself. Because I saw a transplant recipient not too long ago who was infected, and that person got infected from a family member close family member living in the same household who was not immunized. That's a problem. Um, Karen Lamman, uh, it still leaves sort of an open question as to whether eventually we think the COVID-19 vaccine is going to end up being like a flu vaccine. Are we going to, on an annual or biannual basis, whatever the time frame is, uh, will uh, their scientists, uh, uh, medical community be looking at the uh, composition of the vaccine that's going to have to be uh, uh, given to each of us after a year or so to deal with the variants? Is it going to become like a, a different sort of flu shot? That's a great question that I don't have the answer to. What I would say is that if there is some durable immunity from vaccines, um, then even, you know, when infected with variants, people may be, um, you know, may have enough protection that in the balance, revaccinating people every year um, doesn't doesn't really reduce morbidity, meaning like the the badness of the of the effects of a reinfection with a variant, um, you know, it may end up being a, a much milder form of the disease that they contract. I, but this is all my speculation, and I don't, I, I really just don't know the answer to that, Bill. Yeah, I guess that the whole medical community is still wondering what the answer to that question uh, might be down the road. Um, one very, one last very quick question, as long as you've got the ball, Karen, let me uh, throw it to you. And that oh. is the question about the fact there have been some side effects that a small percentage of people have experienced young people, some heart issues. Should the general public be at all worried about these reports of side effects? Certainly the anti-vaxxers are taking those up as a cause. But what about the rest of us? 
Um, you know, personally, I mean, I find it very reassuring when we hear about these, even when they're in very small numbers, because it means that the system for identifying those and being transparent with the public about them and, and further investigating them is working. And that's really what we all need to trust vaccines. Um, the, if you look at what ATIP, the, the CDC committee that looks at these safety issues, at, at their comparison between, you know, the, the number of hospital days uh, and, you know, whatever they quantify as bad outcomes that come from, that people are at risk from uh, broadly from the vaccine, comparing that with what they're at risk for from the outcomes of eventually contracting COVID, there's really no contest. Vaccines um, are such a much greater benefit to us than uh, just letting whatever happens happen. Whatever age group you're in, whether you're a, a, a teen boy trying to figure out whether you should, uh, you know, consider myocarditis as a big risk, or, um, or a, you know, a younger woman considering whether you should uh, consider clotting as a risk. You really, um, getting the vaccine is a much greater benefit than not. Got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in a moment. Andy Miller, uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio said a little while ago that the coronavirus has changed how he and his uh, colleagues in the medical community are dealing with protecting themselves against the virus. But Georgia Health News, uh, in a collaboration with WebMD and I think Medscape Medical News, uh, produced a pretty startling report. You report that among the nation's 50 largest hospitals that were looked at, the percentage of unvaccinated healthcare workers could be as high as one in three. What's going on there, Andy? Well, we were startled, Bill, by uh, what we found. That we used uh, HHS data that's voluntarily reported by hospitals about the percentage of unvaccinated workers they have. And Brenda, who's a terrific reporter, and myself, uh, you know, we found those statistics. And there are some hospitals where fewer than half of workers are vaccinated. And and I think it's really a consumer safety issue, patient safety issue. Uh, and, you know, uh, just to protect those vulnerable patients who are in hospitals from getting this disease. And it's not just hospitals, it's home health agencies, it's nursing homes. Uh, and it's not a cost issue because it's free. You know that the employer, the hospital or nursing home is encouraging it. So uh, it, it, we found that, you know, it goes, uh, it, it goes along the lines sometimes of the community that they work in. But, uh, and there are some hospitals locally that aren't reporting this data, it's voluntary. But they're not reporting the data to HHS, so we don't know what their vaccination rates are among their employees. So, uh, Dr. Landman, I've read uh, the report that Andy's talking about, and it is it is great work uh, for starters, but really amazing. You work with people <laughs> who, are, no matter what the numbers are, at least some of them don't want to be vaccinated. Yeah, I assume Carlos Del Rio is in the same boat. Exactly. So I, I just have to ask you, um, just as a, you know, someone else who's outside that world, what what would you say to someone who's refusing to get vaccinated, who works in the very, in the very system that's battling this disease? I, you know, 
I think I would say something different to each person depending on what their issues are. I think what I would say is a lot more, a lot less important than what I would uh, listen to, really. We need to listen to the people who are telling us they are uh, they don't want to get vaccinated because the reality is there are many different reasons that people have. Sometimes they are related to you know what the cultural norms are in their community. Sometimes they're related to something they read or heard about the science or some myth that they're you know they're they're just different questions and different approaches to each different person who is who is uh, not interested in the vaccine right now. Um, I think this is a good opportunity for me to give a plug to community health workers. It's a really underutilized way of um, communicating with people about um, about health issues in general, but something that we know works well in a lot of countries and in the United States to to change minds and hearts and educate people um, in a in a way that um, allows them to really trust where the information is coming from. I don't remember who it was who earlier said that people often don't trust government, but um, it, they often trust people who are like them. So I would advocate for use of those folks. We found that, uh, of course, that there's a Houston hospital, Houston, Texas hospital, that required requires employees to have it, or they're no longer employed there. And the federal judge threw out a lawsuit against that policy, and so we're seeing more hospitals uh, require it of their workers, require getting vaccinated. And I think some hospitals here are reluctant to do that because of a labor shortage that's going on now. They're afraid to to lose workers, but also the fact that they're waiting for that full authorization of the vaccine. Um, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but Carlos Del Rio, before we run out of time, I, don't, I want to give you a chance to respond to, I mean, I assume that the Emory and Grady communities are taking advantage of the vaccines in pretty large numbers. Well, you're, it's, you're right. And I think, you know, if you look at healthcare workers, uh, physicians, uh, uh, advanced practice providers, about 90 plus percent are immunized. You start looking at, at nursing, it's as lower as maybe about 50 to 60 percent. You look at other employees, it's even lower. I think the problem is many of the young employees. And again, what Andy said before, a lot of misinformation, a lot of people concerned about, you know, fertility. So we need to, to dispel a lot of those myths. But I do agree with Andy that uh, I think when the vaccines uh, receive full authorization, I can see many healthcare systems moving into mandating the vaccines here at uh, you know, at Emory and at Grady, we have had for years mandated uh, the field flu vaccine, and it has been, you know, something that we do routinely. And I suspect something very similar is going to happen with, with COVID vaccine in the, in the not-too-distant future. I think it's an issue of safety for ourselves, but also for our patients, quite frankly. We are completely out of time uh, after a very rich conversation with all of you today. Uh, Andy Miller, uh, Karen Landman, Carlos Del Rio, thank you so much for this conversation today. Kevin Riley, always great having you uh, on the show with me. I do want to close by completing the circle. We started the show by saying that the Japanese government has now declared a state of emergency just a couple of weeks before the Olympics begins, and we have just seen a bulletin cross the wires that uh, the government has mandated that Tokyo will shut down its venues to any spectators whatsoever. They may allow some spectators in the areas outside of Tokyo, but wow, what a development. That's it. We're completely out of time for today's show. We'll be back again with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Listen to what these folks had to say about wearing masks and do it. 
And also, if you haven't been vaccinated, come on. What are you waiting for? See you all tomorrow.